Those remaining can turn to Romans chapter 8. Looking at Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8, thank you for singing those words. Of course, the words that stick out to me are, Be still, my soul. Be still. I thank you as well for those of you who've uh, sent encouraging words uh, to the pastor, to our pastoral staff this week and this month. Uh, so grateful for being able to serve here at Colonial Baptist Church. I'm ever mindful of the fact that I serve uh, the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, the law of sin. As we've been working through Romans 7, my own heart has been stirred uh, by how far I fall short of God's expectations and long for the day uh, when I won't, uh, when I see Christ. So thank you so much for your prayers and uh, remembering that we are all brothers and sisters. We are all of the flesh and uh, weak left to ourselves. In light of that weakness, I want to start with a word of prayer today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word. We believe it is your word. Lord, help us to believe it more deeply. For like the man who needed help for his son, it said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, help me as a preacher to believe the words that I proclaim today. And help our hearers, Lord. Help them to believe that this is true, not just about believers in general, but about them. And by the end of the sermon, I pray that we would respond in the right way to the work that you've done, that we might love God and love neighbor and thus fulfill the law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning I don't have a handout, so I encourage you to take uh, notes on you know, one of those many bulletin inserts. Uh, I think if I had a handout, uh, you would have had a book today uh, as you left in the bulletin. So... Um, uh, it's been my privilege to work through the middle portion of the book of Romans with you. When I say middle portion, I think of Romans 5 through 8, and uh, specifically about what Paul has to say about the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been looking at what the gospel is like and what believers in Jesus experience in their walk with God because of the gospel. Now, in the last several weeks, we slowed down uh, in Romans 7 to consider more about the war that is raging within us as followers of Christ. If you remember the last few weeks, we saw that Paul uses his own example as a mature believer to say, no good thing dwells in him that is in his flesh. And he adds a final summary in 725 uh, when he says that while he serves the law of God in his mind with his flesh, he's serving the law of sin. 
All right, and I, we, we kind of joked around and saying, you know, this is such an encouraging text, Romans 7, that we keep doing what we don't want to do. We do the things we hate and we can't do the things we love. Well, that's not the whole story. That's not the entirety of the gospel. That's not all of its nature. And many of you have been longing for me to get out of Romans 7 and get into Romans 8, right? Can't tell you how many people I've heard tell me, man, I just can't wait to get to Romans 8. You know, that really puts pressure on a preacher. (laughs) Well, the content's good. I don't know about the sermons will be good, but that content is amazing. In Romans chapter 8, Paul turns his attention to no condemnation and to no separation. And in between, to the glories of the redeemed life of a believer. I like how Bob Yarborough says it. He says, chapter 8 is as fixed on the glory of the redeemed life, the life of a believer who has been purchased out of slavery to sin and made the servant of God's righteousness. He says, chapter 8 is as fixed on the glory of the redeemed life as chapter 6 and 7 were fixed on life's challenges. We said it this way, chapter 6 and 7 describes the valley or the foxhole of the daily battles that Christians face with indwelling sin. Chapter 8, however, describes the way that God lifts us out of that through his spirit or lifts us in that through his spirit. So Romans 8 will be far more enjoyable, I think, as a focus for us as we consider the lofty heights and the glory that believers have in redeemed life. It's that lofty part of the Christian experience. It's that glory that we as sinners get that, that, that uh, involves the entire Godhead. One of the things I had you do if you read my email to the church and to our guests today, I had you look through Romans 8 to see the, the Godhead and what they're doing in this chapter. If we're going to talk about the glories of the redeemed life, we will have to talk about the Father, Son, and Spirit And so that's what Paul does in Romans 8. Paul uses words for the Father, words like God, Father, Abba. He uses them 18 times. Paul uses, uh, in Romans 8, I should say. In Romans 8, he uses them 18 times. Paul uses words for the Son, words like Jesus, Christ, Lord. He uses those 18 times. In Romans chapter 8. And not to be outdone, he uses the word spirit to describe the Holy Spirit 19 times in Romans chapter 8. And those totals don't even, don't even uh, include all the pronouns uh, that refer to the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead, he that's used repeatedly here. You know that Paul wants to focus on the glories that believers enjoy by his constant reference to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit in this chapter. Uh, the, the, the glories of the redeemed life have the attention of and the power of the whole Godhead as described in this chapter. But the glories of this chapter and of the redeemed life are also why many pastors and theologians have given so many Uh, lofty titles to this chapter. 
It's like they're all outdoing each other for the last three or 400 years. Romans chapter 8 has been called the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. It has been called the inner sanctuary within the cathedral of the Christian faith. Romans 8 has been called the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden and the highest peak in the range of mountains in the Bible. Perhaps my favorite was the Bible. If the Bible was a ring and the book of Romans its precious stone, chapter 8 would be the sparkling point of the jewel. So in this chapter, we'll consider the lofty heights, the glories of the redeemed life that are ours because of Christ, because of his, the Spirit of God, not because of anything that we have. More specifically today, in the beginning of this passage, we'll consider a text where Paul declares that believers will not face any, you got that right, any eternal judgment because of sin. And consequently calls believers to live the right life that the law always required. My goal this morning in our sermon is I want each one of us to taste the grace of God here. The grace of God in this passage so that we will obey God this week. I I trust that what we see of God's grace today in this passage about not facing any condemnation will be um, uh, the enablement that you need this week uh, to serve the Lord or until he comes. Now, uh, Romans 8 divides into three large sections. Paul moves from no condemnation, which is established in verses 1 through 17, to, in the middle, reflect on the, the glory, the future glory of believers in verses 18 through 30, And then to finish with, third major point, no separation to those who are in Christ Jesus, verses 31 through 35. So it goes from no condemnation to future glory to no separation from the love of Christ. And so we'll take a few weeks more uh, to think about uh, being free from any condemnation of verses 1 through 17, because of our connection with Christ. Uh, So Paul starts here by considering how Christ frees from condemnation through the Spirit, and he begins by considering what believers experience in verse 1. I want to look at this verse with you. Look look in your Bibles at verse 1. Paul says, uh, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, brothers and sisters, this is a significant statement. Um, I'm going to take some time to reflect on this and while reflecting, enjoy it with you. Just about every word in verse 1 deserves attention. Paul begins with the word therefore. Okay, What he's going to give us is an inference or a consequence from all the arguments he's been making in Romans Five through eight. So Paul begins something like this. So, based on what I've been saying, the following statement is true. Therefore, to that word, Paul adds the word now. Okay? 
this could be in reference to something logically coming after or temporal. And in light of the rest of this passage, especially verses 1 through 4, I think Paul probably means since Jesus died and was raised, the following is true. That is, things are different in the now because of what Jesus did on that cross. Therefore, now there is, and the next word, right? No, it's a little word, but so important and powerful. Paul takes this little word no, and he puts it first in the Greek sentence, which is a bit unusual here. Puts the word no right at the beginning, and he does this for emphasis. Paul's not able to use bold and italics like we do. Like we do. It, what he does is he puts the most important word right at the beginning so you don't miss it. So in case you don't finish the whole sentence, you get the main point. No, no. This little word is a sweeping and thorough renouncement. This little word, no, is very helpful as well then for for us as followers of Christ, especially those of us who struggle with guilt and guilty feelings or guilty consciences. As Christians, so Paul says there is no, there is zero, there is none at all. And then he adds to that renouncement, uh, that renouncement to the word condemnation. The meaning of this word might appear to be obvious at first, but it's a rare word that Paul uses. He only uses it three times. It's actually only used three times in the entire New Testament, and they're all used in Romans. The other two occurrences are in Romans 5. You could write down verse 16 and 18, and you could find the same word there. And in that passage, we find out that condemnation is the exact opposite of justification. And eternal life. Eternal life. It's the opposite. Justification is being made right with God eternally. And so being without condemnation means that these people are free from God's eternal wrath against sin. So in Romans 8.1, Paul says that some people will Uh, experience entire and complete freedom from God's eternal judgment on their sin. But we should be asking, I mean, if you knew how glorious that was, you should be asking how. How is it possible for any person to be free from the eternal condemnation or damnation of their sin? And the answer is given at the end of the verse, right? Those in Christ Jesus, I repeat it, those in Christ Jesus are free from all condemnation for sin. And so I submit to you that the most important question you can consider this morning is, are you in Christ Jesus Today, are you in Christ Jesus? Men and women, you you are not in Christ Jesus if you simply attend church. 
You are not in Christ Jesus if you are a member of a church. That doesn't secure it. You are not in Christ Jesus if you've determined to take the next new membership class. You are not in Christ Jesus if you can tell other people things about Jesus. You are only in Christ Jesus if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead and in turn you repent of your sin. Do you believe in Christ Jesus? Have you turned from your sin so that today you can say, I am in him. I am in Christ Jesus. Men and women, this is what believers experience today. Romans 8, verse 1, they experience no condemnation. None. I heard a preacher this week say it this way. He says, All that was condemnable in us was condemned in him. That's stuck with me all week. All that was condemnable in us was condemned in him on that cross. All of God's judgment against sin, his holy wrath, was spilled out on Jesus, on the cross, so that now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. What glory, what grace. But then, in verses 2 through 4, Paul explains how this is possible in Christ Jesus. How is it possible that believers in Christ Jesus experience no condemnation? I want to read verses 2 through 4 with you. Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. From the law of sin and death, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled In us, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Perhaps you can see why I've chosen to only preach on verses 2 through 4 for the rest of the sermon. This requires some attention, right? It's a powerful text, important. Now, as we look at verses 2 through 4, I I first want to point out uh, that seeing how they fit together is important. And one clue uh, given to us to show us how they fit together is the little word for in most Bibles. If you look at the beginning of verse 2, you see the word for. And you look at the beginning of verse 3, you see the same exact word. Both verses start with the same uh, word, little word. And that's because they're both giving us the grounds or the basis for the statement that Paul made 
just before. So in verse 1, uh, Paul makes a statement, and then he gives us the basis for how he could say there's no condemnation in verse 2. And then after making the statement he does in verse 2, he gives the basis of the grounds for how he could say something like that about being set free of sin and death. He, he tells us the grounds or basis in verses 3 and 4. And so first, the grounds for Paul saying that there is no in, in, uh, there is no entirely no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus is found in verse 2, and it's that God has freed believers from sin and death's authority. In other words, God releases those who are in Christ Jesus from punishment through the law of the spirit of life. Now, what is that? Well, Paul explains, I think, in this text, and I think he's using law, not like he's done at different places in Romans to describe the law of Moses, but he's describing a principle or a rule. In this case, I think Paul talks about the restraint or the holy, the, the authority of the Holy Spirit in dwelling believers and how that frees them from the binding authority or restraint that sin places on them that, and, and that sin leads to death. Paul can say believers face no condemnation because God has freed them from sin and death's condemnation through the indwelling Spirit of God. That's the point of verse 2. But then he continues in verses 3 and 4 by giving us grounds for saying that we're freed from the law of sin and death. And uh, his argument unfolds in two ways. First, Paul could say believers are free from the authority of sin and death because God did it. That's verse 3. God condemned sin. How are we free from the law of sin? Well, we are free because God condemned sin in the flesh. That's what verse 3 is about. Now, the way Paul says it is interesting. He says, he starts by saying that God did something that the law could not do. What could the law not accomplish? This is God's law, right? It comes from him. Well, the way to answer that is, well, the law could not help us with sin. It could not help us with our sin problem. Or as Paul says it later in the same passage, the law uh, could not condemn sin. This means that although the law is holy, is the law of Moses holy? Yes, good answer. And although the law is good, is it good? Yes. And although the law is spiritual, is it spiritual? Have we learned that in Romans? Yes. Uh, it is impotent. The law was powerless to help us against sin. All the law could do was identify the sin. That's a sin. That's a sin. Let me give you, you know, 680 some. That's a sin. That's a sin. All the law could do was identify sin. It could not bring us the victory. But why, right? Why is that true about a law that comes from God? I mean, how could it be impotent? How could it be powerless? Well, the answer is here, right? The law was weak in the flesh or weakened by the flesh. 
The law could not do it because we could not obey its regulations and thus find its blessings. You see, you read through the law of Moses in the Old Testament, you see it does promise life and blessings for those who would obey it, but the problem is what? Or who? Who's the problem? Us. We couldn't obey it. We couldn't obey it. So although the law could not do this, I wish I could capture this in the original for you. Um, There's broken syntax here. Although the law could not do it. It's just like Paul saying, although the law could not do it, God. Period. A little bit of broken syntax, a little bit of broken grammar, and I think he does it intentionally so that you just say, okay, the law couldn't do it, but I just want you to think about something, God. And you have to provide the verb did. Although the law couldn't, God. He did. Now, how did he do this? The text tells us, right? By sending his own now, that's an important phrase. Every phrase here is important, and, and it's precise wording. He sent his own son. I'll point out about this phrase. We learn here not only how God condemns sin in the flesh, we learn something more about Jesus here. When God sent little baby Jesus into the world, he sent his pre-existent son, the eternally pre-existent son, That is, the Son was already in existence when God sent him. So God sent the Son into the world. Now the next two phrases or prepositions describe more about God sending his Son into this world. And more specifically, we can learn how he did it and why he did it. How? First, God sent his Son, the text says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Okay, and... and, uh, we will not be able to spend nearly as much time as this vexing phrase has had on me this week. It's a great phrase, but boy, it's been hard to, to, to work through. It's a precise statement. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. If Paul would have said Jesus came in sinful flesh, interpreters might come to the conclusion that Jesus sinned. Or was a sinner. But Paul doesn't say that. He says he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. I agree with many of the evangelical commentators who say this is the only way that Paul could protect two things at the same time regarding Jesus. With this statement. He could protect the humanity of Jesus. He genuinely and truly was a man. uh, But it also protects the sinlessness of Jesus. I think this little phrase, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, is Paul's way of saying what Hebrews 4.15 says about Jesus. Remember this verse, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way as we are yet without what? Sin. And that's a big point he wants to make here, in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is how God did it. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, why did he do it? And this is just these two little words. 
uh, starts with and. And, here are the two words, and for sin. These two little words are used often in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to describe sin offerings. Consequently, these two words, for sin, could be translated as a sin offering. So the judgment that our sin deserves was poured out on our sin-bearer, Jesus. This is why God sent his son into this world as a sin offering. And this is how Paul could say we are free from the authority of sin and death. Now think about the ramifications of everything Paul's been saying to this point. Believers will not only... uh, believers will not be judged by God for their sins because God's Son took all God's wrath and judgment for our sin as a sin offering for you. Can you believe it? Right? No, absolutely no condemnation. This is grace, men and women. To help us illustrate it a little bit, uh, perhaps you could think of some of our constitutionary rights in the United States. One, one of those rights is a clause called double jeopardy, right? And I'm not a legal expert, and I'm mindful of the fact I've got many law students and professors in the room, so I don't want to go too far with this. But as part of the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, the, the, the clause of je- double jeopardy reads, No person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life and limb. As I understand that clause of double jeopardy, it's intended to protect citizens from being tried over and over again for the same crime. And might I say, using that illustration, God functions in a similar way. Since Jesus bore the penalty for our crimes, For us, on the cross, believers in Jesus won't ever be tried or punished for their sins. You see, we not only are free from facing the eternal judgment of God for our sins twice, we don't even face condemnation once because Jesus did it for us. He bore it. I was just reading Isaiah 53. On him was laid the iniquity of us all. He took it for us as our sin offering. But Paul's not yet done. Because I think he knows that for people to hear, because you're in Christ Jesus, there is no, absolutely no, condemnation for your sin. I think he knows that people, when they hear that, might think, oh, well, if that's the case, why don't I sin? So that grace might abound, right? So I think in this text, he gives us verse four. He gives us verse four to protect against this. You see, God condemns sin with a purpose. It's that we might then fulfill the law's righteous requirements. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God condemned sin through Jesus so that we might fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. But what do you suppose that means? What does Paul mean when he says this? I mean, we read it and we think, okay, I think I agree with that, but what does that mean? Righteous requirements of the law likely means the right or just requirements that the law always intended. That is, God sent Jesus to empower us in some way so that we might actually fulfill what the law always required. But there are two ways to take verse 4. And again, I, I went back and forth. On this, I would normally think when I read something like this that the way we fulfill what the law requires is through Jesus' righteousness being transferred to us. That's how I would normally normally think of this. That, that is, we are given perfect law observation through Jesus' righteousness being transferred to us. And I think that's true. He gets my sin, what do I get? Righteousness. His Righteousness. I think that's true. That's how many scholars take this passage. But I think he might have a different point in mind in verse 4. So when you look at the rest of the verse, it seems better to me that Paul's talking about the believer's personal obedience to what the law required. That is, for those who are actually in Christ Jesus, who've believed on him, God sent his son for a specific purpose, and that is so that we might, the text says, fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. How? By walking according to the Spirit and not after our own flesh. So I think the second view is better of verse 4. That What verse 4 is talking about is the believers. That's you and I. If you know Jesus, if you're in Jesus, it's our actual obedience or fulfillment of what the law of Moses required. So God did it this way, so that we might fulfill the right requirements which the law commanded. And the way we do this is through the indwelling presence of the Spirit. I want to close with some applications, perhaps illustrations, to help us gather Paul's point. Trying to fill the law of Moses without the Spirit's enablement is like calling out to a worm to fly. Imagine I got a little worm here, right? And I yell to it, fly! Fly! Doesn't matter how much I do, right? What's going to happen? Nothing! I mean, the thing can barely move. The worm can't get it done. But with the Spirit, the Christian becomes a butterfly. A change has happened. So that now we command, we are commanded, fly! Fly! And what happens? I'll tell you what happens. Grace happens. We fly. We begin to fill the law's intent. We begin to love God genuinely. 
and love one another. Because God has given the Spirit of God to us. We don't do so perfectly. Don't ever think that. We don't ever fulfill the law perfectly in this life. But God sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh for the purpose of empowering Spirit-filled believers to fly. To begin producing the righteousness that the law required. I close our reflections this morning with the famous words that are attributed to John Bunyan. I love these. Perhaps you've heard these before. From John Bunyan to you. He says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear Father. Thank you that as this text says, there is no condemnation. There is no eternal wrath that anyone in Christ will ever face. Thank you that there's no condemnation because we've been freed from the binding authority of sin and death through the Spirit. And you've done so, Father, to enable us sinners, sinners, the Romans 7 type of sinners to enable us through your spirit to fly, to do things we couldn't do. Lord, at this point, we would pray for that. We pray that you would give us strength and grace this week um, as believers in Christ Jesus. to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Lord, fulfill it in us. Help us to walk not according to our flesh, but help us to walk according to the Spirit. And Father, we also pray for anyone here who is not in Christ Jesus. They perhaps have gone to church. They've attended church. Maybe they've been members of a church but they're not in Christ Jesus. Lord, help them in this moment of silent prayer to say to you, I believe that you sent your son. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he was raised by the power of God. And I repent my sin. And I put all my confidence for salvation in Jesus, not my own not my own work, but in Christ Jesus, I believe. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that you give us wings through the Spirit to fulfill what the law always intended. In Jesus' name, amen.